listening to Lost and Rewound on Radio Free Brooklyn. Time to get embarrassed with us, folks. Howdy, howdy, howdy. Howdy. Welcome to the Wild West of Brooklyn. We are lost and rewound in the rootin' tootin' Bushwick basement known as uh, uh, Secondhand Records NYC. We share this space. As well, this is Radio Free Brooklyn. My name is Jimmy. I am Alan, and if you have any commitment in your heart to the cause of Radio Free Brooklyn... The cause. It's Radio Free Brooklyn's programming that they do non-stop non-stop all 24 7 there's programming going on and if you want to donate to the great cause to keep radio free brooklyn alive with financial ease if you want to fund the revolution all you need to do is go online radiofreebrooklyn.com slash pledge pledge a dollar two dollars five dollars ten dollars and any of those amounts will apply to our other site where you can be a sponsor for our show yeah directly for us directly for us Make so, sure we're deep in peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. It's very simple. We can be either sponsored by you or this whole entire station can be given your kind contributions. So either which way, you go to Radio Free you Brooklyn. You go to Radio Free Brooklyn. You use the computer. You, you use you, the mouse. You the, click. The mouse moves the cursor. Get your card info out. Again, RadioFreeBrooklyn.com slash L-A-R. For our show specifically, yes. Yes, it's like SARS, but no S and L. <laughs> <laughs> So for this week, we're going to harken back to Woodstock Youth Theater Productions. The Woodstock Youth Theater was a collective of kids that wanted to just get up on stage and perform and entertain. And it was really great to be growing up in Woodstock, New York, to have that experience. Luckily for the listener, this show is not going to be about me and my experience (laughs) necessarily. It's going to be about an experience from another person. And he is coming up right now. Josh Rubin was on Lost and Rewound. This show was still in its podcast form and had not even made it to the double-digit episode count. More than three years later, Josh has gone through quite a sea change of professional accolades. He left College Humor, started a production company with longtime collaborator Vincent Payone, and most recently, he moved to L.A. after 15 years of comedically conquering New York City. 
quite frankly, this summary doesn't even begin to scratch the surface for what Josh has and continues to have going for him. So to better bring us up to speed, joining us over the phone, the very busy Josh Rubin. <laughs> <laughs> it was a, a horn to announce me. Hello, hello. <laughs> <laughs> oh, of course, man. It's been, it's been... Los Angeles. <laughs> it has been far too but long so adjustments how has the adjustments been uh after all the years in new york and now being a, a west coaster i was very fortunate to have to move out here in october it was going to be april and then i did a little movie actually up in woodstock called what children do that's uh, with john early and some incredible actresses um nicole rodenberg and grace rex and that's playing the festival circuit right now Fantastic. Um, and then I was on hold for Saturday Night Live, a little troopy show called SNL. I don't know if you've heard of it. <laughs> and they kept me on hold till August. So I was basically waiting for them to tell me they didn't want me, which they eventually did in August, to which point another job came up where Amy Sedaris and Chris Elliott played my parents. I sound like I'm bragging, and I am. Um, <laughs> it was really fun. It was a series for Go90. By the time that was done... My girlfriend had already gotten to L.A. and had moved in to a place, um, and I was still working. And then I had to fly to Glasgow to do a commercial for Columbia, at which point I found out I was cast in an FX pilot in L.A. So yeah, yeah, like, yeah. I had to fly yeah, from Scotland to L.A., saw the place earlier than I thought I would, which was nice. But I was jet-lagged. I worked for a week and flew back to New York to pack up back to L.A. and then had to go back to New York for a commercial job two weeks later. So the transition was, <clears throat> there was no transition. I was just like as crazy as it had usually been until like four weeks ago or something. It sounds like you really... So I'm had, happy to be yeah. settled down. Yeah, I was going to say, it sounds like you only now are just beginning to settle down. Only just now after finally the holidays as well have departed. I know. Thank God. I'm kind of like James Franco, but broke and I'm not a good student. I had to actually leave my parents' house in Woodstock at 1 a.m. on New Year's Day to to fly to Seattle Airport from Newark. So it was like a car service as people are like texting me, you know, Happy New Year. We should hang out this year more. What I've been continuing to do up until now is I'm working on Vince and I direct commercials, and I'm actually trying to get out of that. I'm trying to just do less of it and, huh. and focus more on writing, more on acting stuff, because it's, it's going well, and I don't want to lose sight of it. So. Did, did you enjoy the directing experience while you were doing it more full throttle? Yeah, you know, the worst part about directing uh, is directing stuff that isn't yours, and then the best part about directing is anything having to do with directing something that is yours, so I, I don't really have a concept of bliss if you're directing something that you haven't written. And obviously there are a lot of directors out there, you know, who don't need to write what they direct. So I, I'm yeah. really only happy. I don't have a problem saying that directing stuff that I'm writing. I actually did a tiny short at the Buddhist monastery parking lot when I was home because I was bored. I pulled together a little Woodstock crew. That's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. So it's been good. It's been good. I can't complain. I'm just tired and I'd rather be, more creative than doing cat litter commercials. Yeah, but they're good money, though, right? It's that, that's that money. Right yeah, there. but why am I broke? <laughs> um, I'm, I'm not Mike Tyson. It doesn't matter how much money you have. At the end of the day, what does matter is that you are fulfilled and that you've got a lot of stuff that you're working on that you're happy about. 
Uh, I, yeah. I know, I know my, mother, yeah. my mother would probably think differently. She'd be like, no, you should probably be making money. But hey, you know, fulfill your heart and the rest will follow. You're working with the Woodstock Comedy Festival, and that was a passion project of yours. Well, yeah. I mean, it was technically a passion project for, for all of us. Yeah. The concept came from Chris Collins. Yes. Um, who's a, a Woodstock personality, protagonist, hero, Buddhist, uh, fabulous human being, called me. Now it was close to five years ago, and he said, I want to start the Woodstock Comedy Festival. And, of course, I was freaking out at the time. I was working full-time at College Humor, so I had a desk job, essentially, where sometimes you'd be out and shooting, but I was really looking to do something to help people and, you know, something fulfilling, and that was the perfect thing to do. And, unfortunately, the past two festivals of the four, I've been less able to be involved as I've had projects and flying around and moving around, but... Um, I've always been able to consult and to bring in talent and to offer people up. And what's been crazy is that every year we've had a show, we always have this new budding talent that not many people know that then the following year, when we post their pictures, they're like, oh my God, that person's on Saturday Night Live now, or that person is on high maintenance, or that person is, you know, some big comedian. You could call it a platform for young comics, but I like to just think it's a testament to all of our eyes for finding talent and bringing them aboard. You would want to give uh, people the same recognition that you would probably be given in similar circumstances, like when you first started working as a comedian. Yeah, it's incredible. I wish I had the Wichita Comedy Festival as a place to go in my town. I would have, I would have slipped out. So it's so cool to be a part of that in, in, any, uh, in any aspect, and we donate all the proceeds to, uh, to charity charities. It's a cool thing. It's, it's fulfilling for sure. I wish I could be more involved this, this past year and the year before, but um, it's still going strong. Those hippie parents in Woodstock, man, they they raised you guys, you know, and you love the arts. It's, it's a great thing. I know. God, they love the arts and they love helping people. My goal of talent to get up there would be, um, well, first, Two Dope Queens would be amazing. Jessica Williams and Phoebe Robinson, mm. both of which are buddies, but for them to do a live show with some people would be incredible but uh i've always wanted sarah silverman and flight of the concords who wouldn't want them at any comedy festival but them in woodstock just feels so special we got oh, it would be amazing oh my god yeah, that'd be a huge draw that's all i want yeah i actually went and got to see flight of the concords a few months ago and it's very funny because you could tell halfway through the show that jermaine did not want to do the show <laughs> oh man but it was still fantastic and it was only funnier because it was like so jermaine <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, and Brett was like trying to get him into it, <laughs> and it was you could tell yeah, it wasn't an act. So he just wanted great. to go home, and he was cold because <laughs> oh, it was like boy. outdoors and stuff. It seems like you're constantly having fun, even when your projects become more strenuous. I think I've become more of a sociopath. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how that's the case. It's weird. Like I'm 33 now, but when you you turn 30, like things just sort of change you've you've met your professional contacts you you dress a little better you don't play games with women or men um or play less games anyhow you just grow up a little bit unfortunately some people don't but with that like crossing the 30 something threshold i just started to just care a little less not in kind of a, a fatalistic way but in a oh this doesn't matter i i don't i sweat the small things less and now it's a matter of, you know, I can't quote Meryl Streep verbatim, but she had this great quote about in her older age, not needing to busy herself with 
the gossip and the bullshit. That's what's really important to me. Beyond having fun, it's like, oh, I don't need to, you know, worry about this human being. And if they are worried, then I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to put them behind me. You make an excellent point. And to that point, uh, if it is appropriate to point out, uh, you recently left Facebook, at least on the personal tip. It was one of your New Year's resolutions, if I remember reading correctly. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, what's happening was, you know, beyond my, don't call it a, you know, existential crisis of career, but in my, in my sort of wanting to pivot, uh, I can't say that word without saying it like a Silicon Valley character because it's so douchey. Um, in my wanting to pivot uh, to doing more creative things like writing, you know, like I just finished a screenplay that I'm having a reading of this week to see how, how bad it is. I, I have to write another pilot. There's, you know, there's that sort of unspoken rule that writers should be writing a pilot every six months. You should just constantly be working, especially if you don't have a necessarily a set schedule. And I'm about to be a real deal freelancer come February. Um, as I'm trying to, you know, move commercials. Thank you, move commercials more behind me. So what, what happened with Facebook was I'd find myself in 15-minute portals of looking at Jane Johnson's Cape Cod album or, you know, reading Frank Fairlong's status updates about how big his stomach's getting uh, or, you know, taking the what booger you test or whatever. And it's just like, it's distracting. So I realized, holy shit, I'm, uh, these are 15 minutes at a time. These increments are adding up and distracting, detracting from what I could be doing, which is right. writing and being creative. So I, I need to get it out of my life. What I realized was you can deactivate, but if you delete, it, 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 it kills your fan page. So I had to make my girlfriend an admin in order to get rid of my main profile or at least deactivate it without taking down my fan page so that, right. you know, it leaves everybody in the dust. I'm trying to be smart about it, but yeah. it's... Um, you are smart yeah, with social media, though. Sorry. <laughs> you were about to say, unfortunately. Oh, no, I was just going to say, where the Facebook gap has been left, you know, you find yourself scrolling on Twitter and, and Instagram, but at least right. at Instagram, I'm putting up videos of myself and that's doing really well. Like, I'm, I'm like, well, you know, I got to put up a video a day. They seem to be funny and people seem to be responding. So. I mean, social media is a drug and people yeah, just are, are addicted and just like anything else, you know, the dopamine from them, them likes is... Delicious. I find it really difficult, though, for me to remove a lot of the gossip that transpires with social media. So what you were saying before, I try my best to just remove myself from all of the pettiness and the, the gossiping that occurs in uh, all platforms, really, but especially Twitter, which is just a mess. <laughs> like, I, I, I got into it very late. I think I started my page maybe like four years ago, and it's just... It's very noisy. It's and especially noisy now in the current climate we're in. But just as well, you seem to have a pretty good handle on what social media means to you. It's to pr perform and entertain and to provide a sense of uh, catharsis so that when people are going through their feeds, they could laugh a little bit. You really nailed it on the head. It just, obviously, this isn't for everyone. Everyone, you can use it the way you want to use it. But what I realized was in order to solve the mild existential crisis you could say of feeling like unproductive I need to make it work for me so part of it is like okay well Twitter 17,000 people are going to see my funny little quip then I need to make it like really funny on my Instagram it's like you know 2 to 11,000 people depending on the, the account that's the douchiest thing I've ever said um, you know that they're going to be seeing some videos so you have to take it seriously I take it seriously 
or at least as seriously as you could, you know, as a guy that does characters like the hissing bouncer. But every time you do put something out, well, you don't know who's going to see it or you don't know what it's going to inspire someone to do or ask you to come do their project or whatever. I heard a rumor that my putting a Jeff Bridges impression on my Instagram was like possibly part of the reason that helped get me at least in the door for this FX thing. So it's a serious thing. It's also scary, too, because now they have what what started as, yeah, YouTube, anybody can upload a video. Now anybody can be live, which is kind of terrifying. It's terrifying. Um, terrifying. Yeah. Yeah, there's no so, censorship I there. Mean, I don't think we're going to see necessarily a spike in the torture videos, not to bring it down, but that shit does happen where people are like, oh, we can broadcast our bullying live. I just wonder, you know, what the increase is going to be and I mean, what the, the escalation is going to be. I feel, like I feel didn't, didn't Donald Glover get discovered off of uh, YouTube the same way? I mean, he did the... Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah I, I essentially did, too. I mean, I had a sketch group with five buddies, and, the, you know, the, the folks who started College Humor saw what we were doing, making videos before YouTube, and were like, come do for us what you've been doing for yourself. That was how, how with, I had with, a job. With dollars, yeah. With dollars, too. We, yeah. talk, we talked a lot the last time you were on the show about the, your history with Dutch West. We talked a lot about uh, your history with characters and impressions, and all of this is instrumental to the Josh Rubin product, really. And not to uh, belittle it and make it a product, because at the end of the day, when we have to market ourselves, we all have to succumb to some kind of product placement, and how we choose to market ourselves uh, requires, especially if we're doing comedy, to have certain attributes that people can remember us by. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's fair. You know, I, I just look at it as where to kind of exercise, but it's true. It, it ends up being your kind of brand or whatever, your, your branding platform. I never would have thought that, you know, obviously a few years ago when Instagram didn't exist or Instagram video didn't exist, I never would have thought that, oh, eventually there'll be an opportunity for me to have a platform to do a daily character where people can see it easier. It'll be easier to get it out in front of people than YouTube, which it is for me personally right now. Yeah. So it's, that's nuts. Would you say that you take what you do seriously, but that you don't take yourself seriously? Yeah, I actually do really think that. I think that's well said. Unfortunately, I get in my head a little bit about it. I had this thought last night. I did a show at a very, I guess you can call it a high credo venue in L.A. It's called the Nerdist Showroom or Nerd Melt. And it was a show that was hosted last night by guys who came from out of town to do a show they do in New York, but they were here. But the room has all this kind of credo and history. They do Harmontown there. They do the Meltdown. I spent the whole day procrastinating. And sort of going like, oh, I know when I get up there and I do my old man voice that I'll be fine because um, it's an easy laugh. And it's like sometimes I find myself getting into a place that's a little dangerous. And I think like, God, at a bigger level, if I was doing a show at Carnegie Hall or something, I'd like to think that I wasn't putting something off and just kind of trusting that if I got up there. Because that, that was a, the, the flippant way I used to treat doing stand-up. Yeah. Sometimes it would work really well and sometimes it would just plop like a turd in the punch bowl. Yeah, so we have to take ourselves a little seriously to a point because you don't sure. want to waste anybody's time. But uh, yeah, I, I think that's a fair, <laughs> that's a, fortunately a fair assessment. Have you always been a little bit of self-loathing even before you moved to the city? In so much as like, you know, having that air of, 
being able to look at yourself and inflate whatever polarity could occur just from being a kid and being stupid? <laughs> I, <laughs> I think so. I mean, I think that came from being, I wasn't an ugly kid, but I was, you know, you remember, we, we grew up together. I was like, you were handsome. Kind of a, you were you know, handsome. So handsome. Little, little hairy, chubby kid, yep. you know, and I also, I, I don't know if it was that I saw through certain people when I was certain personalities when I was a kid, you know, your relatives that overdress to over impress or, or that, the, you know, that your alarm bells sort of go off when you recognize that someone's being a total fake or an idiot or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know if I saw through it or if I abhorred it or, or was attracted to it or whatever, but, I, I guess I just, I must have made or acknowledged at some point that I wasn't ever going to behave that way or was going to make fun of it <laughs> or, or something. Um, so it's such a, a large part of, I think, where I come from as a comedian is, and I guess all comedians do, is that little bit of anger and, and resentment towards whatever it was that upset you as a, <laughs> a kid that you couldn't quite articulate that now you can to, to way too big of an audience. Yeah, some people will just come and, you know straight up stand-up therapy and i'm like oh yeah i got this whole audience yeah. and i don't have to you don't have to say anything back to me but i know exactly yeah what you mean. I, feeding I off your own insecurities a, is a good thing yeah i mean i hate to get to a point where you're like a kardashian and you're like oh well i guess this isn't the life for me or i you know i guess i should just kill myself <laughs> and you make like a flippant comment about suicide because you know your sister has more followers or whatever you know, that's a place that I'd hate to get to the, a, a petty place like that. Um, who wouldn't? But oh, that, man, that's that's, what, that's the worst. Like I've definitely that. I've definitely been at shows before where there are people where they're not getting laughs and they begin to degrade the audience in the way of they're like, oh, this is funny. You guys just must not that? not know funny. Yeah, and like atta- and really attack the audience. And it's like. No man, they're, they're, they <laughs> no. are. It's, your, it's a gift that you get to go on that stage and perform, and by attacking them, you are jeopardizing whatever chance you had for them to be on your side. Oh, yeah, I mean, last night I did a show and uh, I had a, a. It was in Williamsburg, and there was actually a bunch of Hasidic Jews in the audience. Yeah, so wow. my my friends was like, "Yo, do all your Jewish jokes," and I was like. Oh. Well, I was like, I don't really have any Jewish jokes. Like, all the Jewish humor that I know is, you know, classically hacky Jew stuff that you just say at the bar. You know, it's not my own material. I'm not going to do that. So I just did old-timey New York stuff, and they were loving it. It worked. But I That's built, great. That's the thing is, I, I built my set for them because I knew they'd be the hardest nuts to crack in the audience. And I thought, you know, everyone, you else, will just, everyone else will just go along with it. They'll be into it as long as it's funny. But those people need something yeah. that they can really relate to. And at the end of the day, when it comes to comedy, and when it comes to this human connection, people need to be able to relate to you in any way. Oh, 100%. The only time I ever saw the kind of battle work against the audience, and it's a masterful performance if you haven't seen it, was I think it was Bill Burr who did it. At, I think it was a few years ago. It was a comedy festival. And he started to get booed. I want to say it was in like Pennsylvania. Huh. And he started getting booed, and then he just started ripping into. Is that a Pennsylvania or Boston? And well, he he's from Boston. Into Boston. He's from Boston. Yeah. So you'd think he wouldn't be booed in his own hometown. Hey, yeah. Man. You know, it's... Yeah. And but the way he laid into them was so relentless that he made them laugh. He brought and it he back. Ended up walking. And he completely. It was insane. I'll tell you, actually. I think only him could do it. Yeah. The guy who got me into stand up, 
he used to do that at a lot of his shows. I mean, he would go up and he would do, he would have his act. And his show was a three-hour comedy show. And he'd bring like five different people on. And a lot of them ended up being Dan Soder and all these guys that are on Guy Code and stuff like that now. Oh, um, yeah. And basically, he would go up and just get hammered during the show. And he would do like over an hour's worth of material. And yeah. he was one of those guys. Not everyone can do it. But he was one of those guys where he got drunker and it like added to his character. His name was uh, Giannis mm-hmm. Pappas. And yeah, you talked about him last time. Oh, yeah. Yeah, super funny guy. But he would have instances uh, in that show because it was such a long show. And at that bar, there wasn't like a back room with the performance space. You know, it was at the bar. So you'd have people that didn't know there was a show going on and just sort of wandered in. And, man, like he would go at hecklers. Like he would come exactly like charging at him. And it was impressive. And I, I, I've not gotten to that point yet. But, you know, there's, there's a way to do it. You can be relentless, yeah. but you got to be relentless and funny. That's the deal. I it's admire that so be... much. It's like the Goodwill Hunting, you know, shut down. You exactly. like the apples, but on, on a whole other level. It's just the most manly, powerful thing ever. We've all had those fantasies where you shut someone down with intellect, and that's basically like the heightened version of it. So, yeah, I, I feel like I, I want to train. Does like, they do it well straight. Yeah, I feel like I want to train doing comedy in England just to learn that. Like, wit. That's a part of being British. Like, people that aren't oh, comedians yeah. know how to do that there. We don't, like, oh, yeah. just out-talking someone, converse, you know, just, just, you know, conversationally beating them. And the best way to do it is where they don't get it, that you're literally just smarter than them. And you, and you yeah. out-wit them. And then you're left feeling superior, and they're left, like, you know, just kind of, like, grasping <laughs> air. Like, what, yeah. ha- what just happened oh, a second ago? Cool. Oh, yeah. Man, yeah. Where do we learn how to do that? I just think of like Meteor Man when he touches a book and he suddenly knows everything about it. That was a movie <laughs> reference. Exactly. Um, <laughs> it's a good, that's a good one, too. <laughs> what, what, yeah. was the, what was the actor's name? Oh, my God. You're... That was Robert Townsend. Robert Townsend. Thank you. Wow. Yeah. Comedian. That's wonderful. You're, you're making me think that I, I, this is a good point in which we can segue. Um, let's actually take a quick breather for one second. And when we come back, uh, we're going to dive into some Woodstock Youth Theater. You ready? Oh, baby. We'll be right back after these messages. This is Lost and Rewound on Radio Free Brooklyn. We were teasing before the break about Woodstock Youth Theater. You and I knew each other before Woodstock Youth Theater, but it's really truly where we got to know each other even more so mm-hmm. than when we did at uh, Woodstock Elementary. You came to Woodstock uh, from Maryland when you were 10? Uh, yeah, yeah, I guess it was 10 years old. Yeah, I, I, we moved into the house that my mom grew up in. And then they renovated <laughs> so over the course of the several years that I moved there. I don't think I actually knew this. Your mother is originally from Woodstock? My mom grew up in, in Woodstock. Yeah, she went to like the method, the one-room schoolhouse Methodist church space. Huh. 
like on Reynolds Lane or whatever. So yeah, she, she grew up there. Then she moved to Washington that my dad was married to a Japanese man. So my brother and my sister are half Japanese, which, which when I say that to people, they look at me and they're like, Oh, I can see it. Um, <laughs> That's the best. Yeah. I love, I love, you know, exactly. fun racism, you know, your sister is a, is a uh, accomplished yeah. and talented singer songwriter, uh, Rachel Yamagata, and never ceases to amaze me how, committed you are to big up in your sister uh that's really that's love right there oh yeah well who doesn't love her and her music but yeah she um i have a, a podcast called the mind house and i've done like a you know a couple of short films and commercial she projects, does the theme but, yep any opportunity to, to hire her she does the theme to the mind house podcast she scored some short films that i've done and she's about to score this tiny one that i shot up uh up in uh, Woodstock over the break, out of out of boredom and excitement. So yeah, any any opportunity I have to you know get her credit on anything, it, it's just instantly validating. So back to Woodstock, <laughs> you're you're you move to Woodstock, you go to grade school there, you go to the middle and high school. Your experience with theater didn't begin right away. Who spearheaded the involvement in theater? Was it you? Was it your mother? What a friend? What got you involved in theater? That's a great question. When we first moved, I was in fifth grade. I was going to Woodstock Elementary School. And we, um, my mom, dad, and I, I was having a tough time. I mean, I, you know, I moved from Maryland. At that age, you're moving away from all your friends. I was like a shit kid, at least shitty to my mom and dad. Like, I was too shy to be, you know, a shit to everyone in, in public. But we went to go see a Woodstock Youth Theater show. And I was like, I can do that. And uh, my mom and, and dad were like, okay, great, we're going to sign you up. Because I think I had very recently had a total meltdown when my mom threatened that I would join a baseball team, which I was, like, not a sporty kid. I mean, like, all I wanted to do was eat ramen noodles and watch Batman the Animated Series. So good. Um, in fact, that's what I want to do right now. After we're done. Sounds, like a, I mean, sounds I did, like a plan, dude. <laughs> after. <laughs> I was an actor, not an athlete. I didn't know I wanted to be an actor, but when I saw, you know, these guys doing the Woodstock Youth Theater show, his Bye Bye Birdie, I was like, okay, I want to do that. Play, so my, my mom set it up. You saw me play Albert Peterson then. You were, yes, I absolutely did. With me and me and Nathanson was in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ryan, yeah, Jesse Citron. Megan uh, Ziegenfuss now, but uh, Megan Cahill then, and then uh, Lindsay Squires, yeah. and then. Uh, the lovely Daniel uh, Sumerano, who I'm still friends with to this day, played Rosie Alvarez. When I saw that, I was like, I can do that. And then mom basically sort of made me sign up. I was very nervous. And then my first quote-unquote show was the Lame Miz Cabaret Review, <laughs> which was like not the full of either play, but just like some of the songs. And we performed right. it at the Birdcliff Barn, and like my microphone went out during... I think I want to say like every song that I had, unless I just like didn't project my voice, but that was the beginning. Um, and it was so fun and so terrifying and exciting. And that was, that just basically kind of mapped out the rest of my, um, my youth until I left for acting school. Did you like singing though? I mean, acting obviously came very naturally to you, but singing did that, was that something that you enjoyed to do just as much? I was terrified. Um, I like to do it if I knew the song. So what would happen is like, if lame is, you know, you're doing harmonies, which I didn't really, I, I didn't have a concept of kind of how to make them work at the time or didn't have the confidence. But 
I was very terrified of doing any of it in, in front of, especially people like Ike Shaw and Amanda Rodenberg, who had these incredible voices, and Logan and Danny. But I was a good mimic. When we did Little Shop of Horrors, I mimicked Rick Moranis. I grew up watching that movie, and I basically, I sang it like him, I talked like him, and then that had completely alleviated any jitters. Yeah, we, um, we, we talked about that last week, just, too, and uh, it's, it, it's, it's, it's an easy one to do, especially if you tap into that kind of stereotype well. Completely, 100%. But if I was, you know, if I was, like, you know, going to be Tony in, in West Side Story, which I guess I helped direct in, at Antiora when I was a senior or a junior, I was totally terrified because that meant that Josh Rubin had to sing. Same thing goes with my acting today, like, if I'm playing a character, I'm golden. You're going to get an awesome performance. But if it's me playing like a straight role, of which I've done in a few short films and college humor, it, it was always heightened character stuff, even even playing yourself, which is fine. But as a character, it was always better and more comfortable than playing myself. Yeah, I have to agree. Trying to find the real core, and that middle ground. Yeah, because it's, it's always easier to just be big and be showy and like you can lend yourself yeah. to something, something goofy easily but reality i had a, i played one serious role in that stage play and i've done a couple the same way like it's every time i'm always searching for something myself i'm hoping that the, that, the, mm-hmm. that the director and the camera finds it but i'm looking for it you know but you're right comedy's just like bing you know just you just yeah. can, you can fall into it Lon, you're always very good. I oh, remember. you liked to sing, didn't you? I I did actually. I really enjoyed singing as one would like to do in a musical. I was very happy to warble, warble, warble to my heart's content. I guess I just decided later on as I got older and towards college that I was going to focus more on straight uh, acting as opposed to musicals because I just didn't think I was good enough. And I'll say it right now on the air. I have no qualms about saying that I felt a little bit inferior to people who were more triple threadish. And uh, I could dance. I can still, I still can dance, <laughs> and I can act. But singing, you know, is not something I can do as well. That's why I guess I started doing karaoke and uh, falling down the rabbit hole that I did. Incidentally, I never got would have got into karaoke were it not for Rocky Horror Picture Show at Ithaca College. But Rocky Horror at Ithaca College was not the first time I did Rocky Horror. It was that production that Woodstock Youth Theater put on, where I played the criminologist, which we'll hear of. Uh, We'll we'll hear that in a second, but first we gotta hear you and Logan as Brad and Janet. Oh fuck! This is amazing. Yes, Janet. Ralph's a lucky guy. Yes. Everyone knows Betty's a wonderful little cook. Yes. And that Ralph would be in line for a promotion in a year or two. Yes. Hey, Janet. Yes, sir. I've got something to say. I really love the skillful way you beat the other girls to the prize bouquet. The way that we steam dry sweat, the future is our soul's plan. So please, don't tell me the news. I wanted to say, and that's damn it, Janet, I love you. The robe is long, but I wear it. There's a fire in my heart. There's three ways that love can 
you enjoy this yeah. show do you have any memories of this show this was the summer of 98 so we were heading into 10th grade all right so the first memory was i hadn't seen the movie in years or i'd only seen a piece of it so i didn't know much about the show beyond the fact that there was a movie so my parents and i rented it from <gasps> woodstock video uh-huh. and uh we quickly realized even me it was fully open quickly realized how sexual both homo and hetero the material was yes. and then like i believe my mom or dad called the director beth lipton was like my son can't do this show this is like so totally over sexualized this and that I, I remember them having some like heavy conversation with, i just remember like pacing in the kitchen like my mom being like my son can't you know whatever be in his underwear and yada yada and then I, I, I know at some point, I wonder if you remember this, Alon, like there was some conversation that's having with all of us. It was like, we're, it's going to be, you know, rated such and such. And I, I, she might have even said, like, I did have a conversation with one of your parents who expressed concern <laughs> and like, you know, so my first experience was like, well, I'm not going to do this show, I guess. And then Touch and Touch and Touch Me was the, like, the, you know, the, the oh sexy Susan Sarandon number was turned into the Touch of Tango. It was a tango. It was a dance. It was a total dance. Yeah. What ended up happening, and I because I, I had to watch it. For those of you who remember, <laughs> the Touch and Touch and Touch Me 
where there is a lot of touching and grabbing. Uh, Logan, who plays Janet, and then David Rossiter. Uh, shout out to David Rossiter, who lives out <laughs> in Michigan now. He used to be my neighbor, and he totally killed it as Frankenfurter for all intents and purposes. Totally what, what they made him wear was who knows who was responsible for that. It was like him and Logan, and they would be dancing, and then they leave the stage, and then you walked on stage, and David walked on stage, and then you did a little dance, and then Logan yeah. came on stage, and Zach Chandler, who played Rocky, who was clothed, he wasn't without clothes. He wore a shirt, like a gold lame shirt. And... A very tight one, which, by the way, I might add, my parents were, or my mom was the one who said, and Zach Chandler's little thing flopping around in those gold shorts. <laughs> It's like they were like so concerned that you could see. You know, oh what God, the outline of his anyway. of his tail. <laughs> it was a PG version of Rocky Horror Picture Show. You can only do so much with a show that is not necessarily even meant for kids our age, but we did it. Hey, I mean, Little Shop of Horrors is not touching on the lightest of topics either. He's trying yeah. to. He's trying to eat no, them. No, I had no idea. The plant's trying to consume them. The whole play. He's just trying to trick them into dying, basically. Right. <laughs> well, just the, um, I, I mean, I wish I'd known in retrospect, not like it would have changed as me as a, being a 15, 16-year-old, but the homosexual flight and, and the oppression and sexual freedom and all that stuff. But my God, I mean, it's funny. We're like talking about the crucible today, too. Like, I didn't even know what the word licentious was. Like, the subject matter that we did, I didn't understand I don't know. I don't know if any of us did of any of these shows, other than like you know, once we were seniors. Like you know, yeah. I remember when I joined. I think they had just done hairspray. Um, but my God, I mean, you know, in retrospect, it's like oh, they had a bunch of kids do a show about you know, sexual liberation and um, you know, political witch hunting. We want to get to that in a little bit. I wanted to play this clip from Marat Saad, in which uh, which. which fits in perfectly with what you're saying because there's a lot of language and a lot of topics that are very heavy for high schoolers to be doing. So let's take a listen and then we'll talk a little bit about it after. Already seated in his place. Here is the rush. Observe his face. Fifty years old and not yet dead, he wears a bandage around his head. His flesh burns, it is yellow as cheese, because disfigured by a skin disease. Only water ruling everything prevents his fever from consuming him. To act this most important role, he chose a lucky paranoia, one of those who've made unprecedented strides since we introduced them to hydrotherapy. The lady who is acting as his nurse, whose touch certainly makes him no worse, is Simone Evron, not Charlotte Corday. Marat and Evron united one day. They shared one vision of the just and true, and furthermore, they shared the money, too. <laughs> Charlotte Corday waiting for her entry. She comes from court, her family landed gentry. Her dress is pretty, shoes chic, and you'll note she readjusts the cloth around her throat. Unfortunately, the girl who plays the role here has sleeping sickness, also melancholia. Our hope must be for this afflicted soul that she does not forget her role. <laughs> Ah, here comes Monsieur Duperet. 
with a silken hose and friends to save to the revolution's murderers. <laughs> <laughs> of my abandoning. Though, as a well-known Giron beast, his name is upon the rocks blacklist. He's handsome, cheerful, full of sense, and needs more watching than the rest. Shall for taking a radical view of anything you can name the former priest. Shafru! <laughs> 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 Ally of the Rock's revolution, but unfortunately the censors cut most of this rabble rousing theme, for our moral guardians found it too extreme. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, our plans are drawn from many social layers. Singers, for example, of these five may each be considered bottom drawer. And now they've left their alcoholicness of slums and gin cellars, our vocalists, Cuckoo, Ruku, Paul Park, Coco, and on the streets no longer rotting your <laughs> Now me, this gentleman, from high society, who under the lurid star of notoriety came to live with us just five years ago. It's to his genius that we owe this show the former Marquis Monsieur Nissan, whose books were banned, his essays barred, while well, he's been persecuted and reviled, thrown into jail, and for some years exiled. The introduction's over. Now the play of Jean Pomerat can get underway. Tonight the date is the 13th of July, 1808. And on this night, our cast in showing how 15 years ago, night without end, fell on this man in blue. And you are going to see him flee. <laughs> and you are going to see this woman after careful thought. If that isn't like the longest patch of lines that anybody has to ever memorize for a 16 year old, I don't know what is. Oh man, if I ever had, I don't can't remember having more fun than Maratzad. That was the show where I felt like I was old enough to understand the material, like the way that they directed it. It was Beth, right? Yeah, it was, it was Beth. The way that she directed it, the way that she, she used to have us do exercises where we just kind of walk in a circle and like pretend like we were in an asylum for an hour. I, I mean, it was like, it was really, I, I had a hell of a time doing that show. Did you enjoy it, Alon? Thoroughly. One of my favorite shows to yeah. work on. And, and because it was an ensemble, because nobody, even with the people who had main parts, Everybody had a part in that show, even when they were the company, and didn't have necessarily lines like some of us did. I was lucky to have one line, even though I was an inmate. Um, just as well, whatever the case was, being in an ensemble situation with that show made me feel more together with my fellow actors. I still, to this day, will hum songs from that. And actually, while I was watching it, I was like remembering the songs really well it was an enjoyable production i remember one of the nights that we performed at the bird cliff it was raining and thunderstorming and it was super ominous mm. while we were performing so it added a real nice nice touch you know yeah god that was a fun one that was a fun one i want to get to the crucible before we lose time here uh because we wanted to reenact the scene that we're about to hear right now so let's take a listen to that. Let's take a listen to that right now so we can get the context. Mr. Collins saw her going over Ingersoll's barn. 
comes out light as a bird, he says. Well, you goody Putnam, she never did any of this. Thomas, good morning. It's a providence that things happen now. It's a providence. Uh, what's that, sir? What's... Why, her eyes is closed. Look, you, Anne. Why, that's strange. Ours is open. Your Ruth is sick? I'd not call it sick. It's heavier than sick. It's death, you know. Death driving into him, forked and hooved. Pray not. Why, how does Ruth ail? She ails as she must. She never wakes this morning, but her eyes open, and she walks, hears not, sees not, and cannot eat. Her soul is taken, surely. They say you've sent forever and hail of Beverly? As a precaution only. He hasn't much experience in other demonic arts. And he has indeed. I found a witch in Beverly last year. How good he am that you're only... There is no element of witchcraft here. I am no so witchcraft. Now look, Thomas, Mr. Thomas, I pray you, do not lead to witchcraft. The cause is yet unknown. It will topple me out of this, this Salem. Such corruption in my house. Mr. Paris, I have taken your part in all contention here. And I would like to continue, but I cannot if you hold back on this. Thomas, you cannot. There are hurtful, vengeful spirits lay out of hands of these children. Thomas. And tell Mr. Paris what you have done. Reverend Paris, I have laid seven babies unbaptized in this earth. <laughs> Believe me, sir, there were so many hardy babies born. Yet each would wither in my arms the very night of their birth. I have spoke nothing, but my heart has clamored intimations. And now, this year, my Ruth, my only, I see her turning strange. A secret child she's become this year, and shrivels like a sucking mouth were pulling on her life, too. And so I thought to send her to Jatuba. To Jatuba? What made Jatuba have- Jatuba knows how to speak to the dead, Mr. Paris. Good lad. It is a formidable sin to conjure up the dead. I take it upon my soul. But who else may surely tell us what person murdered my babies? Woman! They were murdered, Mr. Paris. And mark this proof, mark. Last night, my Ruth were ever so close to their little spirits. I know it, sir. For how else is she struck dumb? Now except some power of darkness would have stopped her mouth. It's a marvelous sign, Mr. Paris. Don't you understand it, sir? There is a murderer witch among us bound to keep herself in the dark. Let her enemies make of it what they will. You cannot make it more. And you were conjuring spirits last night. Not I, sir. Too bad. Oh, Abigail! What proper payment for my charity! Now I am undone. You are not undone. Now you take hold here. Wait for no one to charge you. Declare yourself. You have discovered which In my house! In my house, Thomas! They will topple me with this. Your pardons? I always thought to see how Betty was. Where'd she home? Who's with Ruth? Her grandma come. She's improved a little, I think. She let out a powerful sneeze before. Ah, uh, there's a sign of life. You needn't worry anymore, Goody Putnam. Another one like it will shake her wits together. If you would go, Thomas, I would pray a while alone. Uncle, you've prayed since midnight. I no. think... No, no. I have no answer for that crowd down there. I wait till Mr. Hale arrives. Now, look you, sir. Let you strike out against the devil, and the villains will bless you for it. Come down. Speak to them. Pray with them. 
to thirsty for your word, mister. Surely you'll pray to them. I'll lead them in a song, but let you speak nothing of witchcraft. The cause is yet unknown. I've had enough contention since I came. I want no more. Mercy, you go home to Ruth, do you hear? I will. She runs to the window and cry for me at once. I will, sir. There is a terrible power in our arms today. Okay. That was heavy. Did we fuck up at the end there? Maybe. Did we some lines? We, we were learning lines, like, right up until the last minute. It, it was a very uh, volatile production, <laughs> to say the least. We're going to make up for uh, our past transgressions, and we're going to reenact this right now. I'm going to be Putnam again. Josh, you will be Paris again. Be all, all the female roles. So, yeah. <laughs> who, was, who played Anne a lot? Tell me uh, that. Lila. She's good. And now we present to you a Lost in Rewound reenactment of the scene that you just heard from The Crucible. Why, it's sure she did. Mr. Collins, sir, going over to Ingersoll's barn and come down light as a bird, he say. Now, look here, Goody Putnam. She, she never... Oh, uh, good morning, Mr. Putnam. It is a providence. The thing is out now. It is a providence. What's out, sir? What's... Why, her, her eyes is closed. Look, you, Anne. Why, that's strange. Ours is open. Your little Ruth is sick. I'd not call it sick. The devil's touch is heavier than sick. It's death, you know. It's death driven into them, forked and hooved. Oh, pray not. Why, how does your child ail? She ails as she must. She never walked this morning, but her eyes open and she walks... And he is not, sees not, and cannot eat. Her soul is taken, surely. They say you sent for Reverend Hale of Beverly? <laughs> A precaution only. He has much experience in all demonic arts. And I... He has, indeed, and found by a witch in Beverly last year. And let you remember that. I pray you leap not to witchcraft. I know that you, you least of all, Thomas, whatever wish so disastrous a charge laid upon me, we cannot leap to witchcraft. They will help me. Now look you, Mr. Paris. I have taken your part in all contention here, and I would continue, but cannot if you hold back in this. There are hurtful, vengeful spirits laying hands on these children. But Thomas, you Thomas, and you cannot, tell you Mr. Cannot. Paris what you have done, Reverend Paris, I have laid seven babies unbaptized in the earth. Believe me, sir, you never saw more hearty babies born, and yet each would wither in my arms the very night of their birth. And now, this year, my Ruth, my only, I see her turning strange. A secret child she has become this year, and shrivels like a sucking mouth with pulling on her life too. And so I thought to send her to your tituba. Tituba, what made Tituba? Tituba knows how to speak to the dead, Mr. Paris. Oh, no. Goody Anne, it is a formidable sin to conjure up the dead. I take it on my soul, but who else may surely tell us who murdered my babies? Woman! (laughs) They were murdered, Mr. Paris! And mark this proof. Mark it. Last night, my Ruth was ever so close to the little spirits. I know it, sir. For how else is she st- uh, stuck dumb now? <laughs> except some power of darkness would stop her mouth. 
It is a marvelous sign, Mr. Paris. Don't you understand it, sir? There is a murdering which among us bound to keep herself in the dark. Let your enemies make of it what they will. You cannot blink it more. Then you were conjuring spirits last night? Not I, sir. Not I. <laughs> Tatuba and Ruth. Now I'm undone. You, now I'm undone. You are not undone. You are not undone. Let you take hold here. Wait for no one to charge you. Declare it yourself. You have discovered witchcraft. In my house. In my house, Thomas. It will topple me with this. It will make it of a... Your pardons. I only thought to see how Betty is. Why aren't you home? Who's with Ruth? Her grandma comes. She, she's improved a little, I think. She she gave a powerful sneeze before. Oh, there's a sign of life. <sighs> Will you leave me now, Thomas? I will pray a while alone. Uncle, you prayed <laughs> since midnight. Why do you go down and, uh... No, 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 no. I'll wait till Mr. Hale arrives. Now, look you, sir. Let you strike out against the devil, and the village will bless you for it. Come down. Speak to them. Pray with them. They're thirsting for your word, mister. Surely you'll pray with them. I have no stomach for disputation this morning. I will lead them in a psalm. I've had enough contentions as I came. I want no more. Mercy, you go home to Ruth, do you hear? Aye, ma'am. She starts for the window. Beautiful. And scene. And so so ends the very first and maybe the very last reenactment of. I hope not, Ben. We we, we should do this again. I think, you know, what inspired me was uh, like Last Chance Theater or like uh, reenacting New Yorker cartoons on Seth Meyers. So uh, thank you, Seth Meyers and uh, Mike Scollins and the whole writing team there for inspiring me. Me to reenact a a twenty year old uh, play from the archives. Dude, we could totally redo old clips like that more often with people in the future. Like, oh sure, oh it's so fun. God, I hope I get more famous. I'll just come back and keep going. <laughs> what, where where can people find you on the internet? My new favorite destination is Instagram. Josh Rubin snaps. Got Josh it. Rubin snaps. You've got so many projects in the work. People could find you all over the place, and you are so very, very present and funny. Google him. Google him, Josh Rubin. Oh. Oh. <laughs> Guys, thank you so much. This was so fun. Dude. Hey, yeah, thanks for coming on, man. It was a pleasure having you. I'm so glad that we got a chance to unearth these theatrical archives and listen to a little bit of teenage Josh Rubin and hear where he got his start. It was a pleasure to listen to, to teenage Alon Danziger and to have <laughs> adult Jimmy insert himself. <laughs> Thanks, man. Uh, Thanks. In that. In, in our teen, into our teenhood. Exactly, <laughs> right? Thanks again to all for listening. We are Lost and Rewound on Radio Free Brooklyn. My name is Alon. I'm Jimmy. Every Thursday at 3 p.m. Take care. Take care, America.